Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports professor Riccaro and we are keeping score in a $1.3 trillion business of sports racked by the pandemic. We may be over the hump, but certainly now leagues look like they're opening training camps, facilities, health issues, franchise values. All the issues that were put on what was a extended hold at the beginning of March, we now may see a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's hope it's not an oncoming train. In that context, deal-making minutes three to one. Number three, the Last Dance documentary with Michael Jordan emphasized his popularity. And according to the Business Insider, Jordan brand sneaker sales up 40% on StockX since the series premiered on April 19. A company founded by Cleveland Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert was the beneficiary of a lot of this. And last Sunday, the fifth episode of the 10-part series tackled the origin of the Air Jordan shoe, an immediate transaction increase. While any Jordan shoe drop creates bursts of sales, resales, and consumer searches, the combination of the documentary, airing during a pandemic lockdown that has people itching for fresh sports content, and recent new shoe introductions have powered the current wave. That's number three. Number two, it's part of an industry-wide collaboration Leading the responsible return of golf, the game's allied organizations have established Back to Golf, a plan outlining operational guidelines for golf's 16,000-plus facilities that adhere to established protocols and best practices. USGA, PGA, LPGA, PGA of America. A lot of other organizations teaming with the CDC and golf leaders. The industry-wide initiative been primarily focused on ensuring golf courses that have remained operational or will reopen soon do so responsibly to protect golfers, employees, and all members of the community. That's number two. Number one, an outgrowth, basically, of the whole issue around number two, Hard Rock Stadium committed to becoming the first publicly uh, interested facility to receive Global Bio-Risk Advisory Council STAR accreditation. The initiative serves as the gold standard for facilities to implement cleaning, disinfection, and infectious disease prevention work practices. When our fans, players, and staff are able to return to Hard Rock, we want them to have peace of mind and doing everything we can to create the safest and healthiest environment possible. Miami Dolphins and Hard Rock Stadium Vice Chairman and CEO, Tom Garfinkel. The best practices, obviously, with architects, uh, engineers, and others to make sure this is a safe issue regarding long-term facility development. And by the way, Seton Hall study, if you remember, said 72% of those surveys surveyed said they wouldn't even come back to a stadium without a vaccine. This is an attempt to ease their concerns. And along those lines, the Houston Texans added a facility hygiene coordinator. 
Jamie Roots, the president, and others were talking about how to institutionalize safety, and certainly a member of U.S. pro, sport, pro sports team, the Houston uh, uh, Texans, the first one to actually hire a dedicated industrial hygiene expert, even though the NBA has asked clubs to appoint a point person among existing staff. The bottom line is this is a very important issue and will continue to be important in the years ahead. That's number one. Well, Ron, football, and it's a very important issue to me, and I think I've mentioned before, uh, I had been very close to legendary coach Don Shula, set the NFL record for wins, for championships, not so, but certainly a champion in the South Florida community. One of the issues involved with Don Shula is his brand and likeness and name, not only from the stadium and the undefeated early 1970s Miami Dolphins, which is one of the reasons I came back to South Florida, by the way, but also Shula Steakhouse's, his brand recognition. And one of the things that's very important is to honor his legacy among all participants everywhere. Bob Greasy quarterbacked some of Don Shula's greatest teams. He shared his coach's competitive fire that helped the Dolphins winning culture. Greasy led the offense in three consecutive Super Bowl appearances, two of them victories. Following an All-American career at Purdue University, inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame and the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he later worked as a commentator for college football games on ABC and ESPN. A good friend, interesting perspective from an interview we did a while ago, but the lasting lessons of Don Shula endure. Here's Bob Greasy. One of the dynamic things about Don Shula was that no matter what people like Larry Zonka and others said, Don Shula was consistent, sneaky, and the best. His examples in the Sport Business Handbook, uh, a book that uh, I, I compiled and Don Shula honored me with a chapter, was how to be consistent with your own virtues and maybe be a little more clever than the opposition, let's call it. When he took over the team, they were 3-10-1. and one. And one of the first things he had to do, he said in the book, was to change the culture from winning or losing and losing. And he issued his words, not a curfew, uh, but rather than bed checks, he gave the elevator operator uh, a football and told him to have every player that he saw after 10 p.m., which was his initial curfew, sign it. He told him not to mention where he got the football, but that he wanted to see the football in the morning. Obviously, when Larry Zonka saw his name on the football, there go his argument that he was in bed and not to check him. He didn't get checked, but it was a watershed moment in how the Dolphins viewed their life under Don Shula. And certainly I called him and counted on him very significantly to be a friend. We will all miss Don Shula. Rick Harrell be on the scoreboard inside the boardroom. The business of a trillion dollar sports industry. And one of the founders of the business, he didn't know that. All he did was uh, um, end up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1990 and 25,000 yards passing and leading the Dolphins to two perfect seasons. But in many ways, he shaped a lot of the business of sports because of his ability to transition from on-the-field success to behind-the-broadcast booth success uh, and doing both careers with special alacrity. That means it's pretty good. Bob Greasy, how are you? How's that for an intro? That's pretty good. Good. I'm uh, doing good. 
now the Dolphins won a game, you know, I'm doing much better. Well, right. This is Evergreen, so we may run this before a number of losses, too. But i got to tell you, <laughs> based on our pregame conversations, nobody expected that. But, uh, you know, we never know. We never know with NFL football generally, plus with this team. So, yeah, let's get that out of the way. Where, 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 is, this team, where is this team going before the end of the season? Do we know? I don't think we know. I think the best we can hope for is um, to win. Uh, there's four games left. Uh, there's four games left. I think the best we can hope for is to win all four of those games. Two are at home and two are on the road. Uh, we've got New England, the Patriots, coming this this uh, uh, Monday. So um, uh, if we can beat them, uh, we can beat the next three. And we play Buffalo twice and we play at um, Kansas City. And... Uh, that that'll be uh, interesting to be in Kansas City on Christmas Eve because it was uh, 1971, the longest game in NFL history. Well, the Dolphins were at Kansas City on Christmas Day, and um, we beat them in double overtime. Two went into the second quarter, um, and uh, that game is remembered uh, by Jan Stenerud. Uh, who was the kicker for Kansas City. I see every uh, summer when I go to Canton, uh, he's in the Hall of Fame as uh, well, and uh, he still has not gotten over uh, missing uh, a couple field goals that he missed that would have could have won the game for Kansas City. So they've got four games left, and I think the best we can hope for is to win four and see, see where the chips fall. I, we're playing better football, but the the problem with this whole season, I think, it started going downhill uh, in the summer when Ryan Tannehill got hurt in practice. Yeah, um, and it went it went it went downhill from there, and it wasn't anybody's expectations. But that's when you uh, you know one and four last year. Who knew? And nine and seven could get in. But we are thinking of more lofty things. It is interesting that you peg the 1971 Christmas Day game as one of those things where everybody who is old enough to remember, and there are still some of us, remember exactly where we were. Easy for you to remember because that was, if I'm not mistaken, your MVP season. And even though that wasn't the perfect season, it set the stage for the perfect season. That was, as I remember, at Super Bowl six, and then you win two straight other Super Bowls. And, you know, growing up in Miami, reflect back, I know you're asked this millions of times, on the perfect season and how the perfect season can never be taken away from you and the perfect season may never happen again. Well, as, as Coach Shula says, it's, it's, it's just very tough to go undefeated. It's very tough to win every game. Well, the frustrating part um, about the 71 season and the loss in the Super Bowl was Coach Shula uh, hit it on the nail on the head when he said that, the frustrating part was you're going to have to play all this 1972 season. You're going to have to play the entire season just to get back to where we were in the Super Bowl in 1971, the one we lost to the Dallas Cowboys. So he already set the tone for the following season. Um, uh, I got hurt in the fifth game. Um, Earl Morrow came in and uh, 
played very well. Coach Shula had picked Earl up earlier in the uh, in that '72 season in March. He tried to convince Joe Robbie that, hey, if anything happens to Greasy, we need somebody better to. And Earl Morrow in Baltimore, when Shula was there, uh, he was very confident that Earl was a good player. And so that's what happened. Uh, Robbie says, all right, if you think you you really need him, I'll find some way to pay him. (laughs) And so anyway, uh, I get hurt in the fifth game. Earl Morrow comes in. He wins all these games. Earl was not a good practice player. So a lot of the guys on the team were kind of uh, rolling their eyes when Earl had to go in because they seen the way he practiced and wasn't a very good practice player. But when he got in the games, he really delivered. So um, Earl went, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11 games, and I was healthy from a a dislocated ankle to come back into the championship game, uh, the AFC championship game, and then also come back in the Super Bowl. But... um, and so we won, it, uh, we won seven, 17 and 0, but there would be no undefeated season without uh, Earl Morrow. Well, you know, the bigger issue, too, as well, obviously, uh, you're, uh, you're uh, 17 and 0, and n- nobody has done it, and I'll say nobody will do it again, and everybody kind of makes fun at the last undefeated team going down and what Mercury Morris has been doing. It, growing up in South Florida, South Florida is a melting pot, and people always come from somewhere else, either from the New York area south or, or the Havana area north, uh, and everywhere in between. Uh, do you reflect back on the what what you, in a maybe significant way, did to change the culture, to add to the culture, to really impact the culture of South Florida? Well, you know, before the Dolphins. South Florida, Miami, never had a professional team of any sorts. They didn't have the Heat. They didn't have the Marlins. They didn't have the Dolphins. Uh, All they had was this uh, rickety old Orange Bowl where the University of Miami played. And once a year they would have the Orange Bowl game there. So when the Dolphins came, that was the first thing uh, everybody just and, and it was obviously an expansion team, and the Dolphins didn't win many games. I came in '67, the second year, and we had losing seasons for three years '67, '8, and '9 until Coach Shula came in 1970, and then the whole thing turned around, and uh, that fan base that had been so loyal to uh, losing. Uh, Dolphin teams in the late 70s were rewarded when Coach Shula came and then three three straight Super Bowls in a row, we won two of them and one of them was a perfect season. And and nobody can take it away from anybody. I just, you know, to reflect back on what it means to South Florida, not just that you get a team, but that South Florida, with all of its racial divides and ethnic stress and all, can look back at something that somebody around South Florida did perfectly. What, 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 what do you think that means? Well, um, I think it means a lot. I, 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 because, first of all, uh, no other Dolphin team has done it before. Uh, the closest thing that this fan base in South Florida could wrap their arms around, I think, is the Miami Heat 
who won the NBA uh, championship. Um, but the Dolphins uh, have been in Super Bowls before, and not uh, uh, since then, but not not won them. Uh, so I, I think that uh, everybody likes to think back to the Dolphins and when uh, we were dominating the uh, NFL and when we were the perfect season. Everybody loves to talk about the perfect season. It's great emotionally. It's great psychologically. And, you know, when you retired in 1980, uh, people would reflect back on your career that started in 67. And you had other things in mind, I guess. 82, you teamed with Charlie Jones with NBC and called Super Bowl 20, and then with ABC, ESPN, and then back to the Dolphins' color. Um, how did you make your mind up to transition from football on the field to broadcasting, and what did you have to do to prepare for your next career? Well, I came out of Evansville, Indiana. My dad was a plumber. I didn't know that I was going to uh, be able to get a college education. Uh, I was a better baseball player uh, than football or basketball, which I played all three sports. The um, We were playing um, in the American Legion World Series of, for uh, in 1967, the year I went on and, and went to Purdue. And in the summer before I went to Purdue, a Baltimore Orioles scout comes and wants to sign me as a pitcher as, to a Baltimore Orioles um, minor league team. And I said, no, I'm going to Purdue. I'm going to get an education um, and, and go on from there. So I didn't have any aspirations of, of playing uh, professional football. I wanted to just go ahead and, 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 and get my education and, and be at Purdue. And, and um, uh, things happened. Uh, we won the, uh, the Rose Bowl. I had a couple of good years at Purdue. Uh, uh, finished second in the Heisman voting to Steve Spurrier. So it got drafted first by the Dolphins. Uh, it, it, you know, everything, I majored in industrial management and certainly not uh, broadcasting. Um, so I just came down. I said, all right, I, you know, uh, that's, I played for the Dolphins for 14 years and coached one year with Coach Shula. Uh, and then he said, uh, I said, I walked, after that was over with, I walked in and said, here's your playbook. I'm, I'm finished. He says, oh, no. He says, you got to do this. He says, you love this coaching business. I said, yeah, but I love my three kids more. <laughs> so after that, then um NBC came to me and wanted to know if I was interested in broadcasting and I said, "Well, yeah, I'll try that, you know. Uh, I could spend spend a lot more time with my kids during the week than you would uh, being a coach in the NFL." So, uh that's how I got into it and um uh the first 5 years I did with NBC and did the NFL and then the next 25 years I did college games of uh, the first half with Keith Jackson and uh, then Brad Nessler and then a whole bunch of other guys. Well, so obviously the transition was something that you were able to do, um, I wouldn't say fairly easily, but the kind of industrial engineering 
background and, and makeup, you're a very analytic, analytical, analytic person. You know, you'll throw seven passes and win a game and go undefeated. You'll transition into broadcasting. What's the, what's the biggest skill or the easiest skill you can identify in your world that were kind of common to both on-field success and broadcasting success from your perspective? Well, I, you know, I think growing up um, in southern Indiana, uh, my dad died, he was a plumber, and my dad died when I was 10. My mother had to go to work as a, a secretary. Um, Little League Baseball was big to me. You know, all I wanted to do was go to school, grade school at first, uh, and then afterwards find some kind of athletic thing to do, baseball or basketball. Didn't have football back then, it, it organized in any way. Um, so I, I just wanted to do the best I can. I was very competitive, um, competitive in the athletic uh, environment, uh, and then also competitive uh, in the in the classroom. I remember back in grade school, we were the teacher would stand everybody up in the back of the room, and we'd have a spelling contest. And I was I. I damn sure wanted to win that contest. Well, if you spelled a word wrong, you had to sit down. And I, I, def, I definitely was the last person standing more often than not. So I would say, you know, the competition, the competitiveness. I, I wanted to be, do the best I can. And in this business about throwing seven passes or ten passes or twelve passes, you, we won those games, and I, and I called the plays. If I wanted to, if I wanted to be the MVP of the Super Bowl, I could have thrown twenty-five or thirty passes, but that's not what we needed to do to win. Our, our strength was was Zaka and Kick and Mercury Morris and the offensive line. I feel badly, and I told Paul Warfield this. You know, he was one of the best wide receivers to ever play in the National Football League but he didn't get a chance to show his real skills because we didn't throw that much. You know, we, you know, I, like you said, we threw seven balls, but we won the Super Bowl. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I, I come from. I, you know, it's not, it's not about me. It's about the team. And clearly that's the way it's been consistently for you too. Just a couple more from the broadcasting perspective. You've been in it for years and you can reflect back on how things have changed from a business, I guess, of broadcasting perspective. What, what's the biggest change you've seen since you broke in in 1982? Um, is it social media? Is it, you know, the need to get something done quickly? Just, just kind of give me your perspective on the last 30 years and what's the biggest change in the media broadcasting business has been. Well, you, definitely social media is, is part of it. And then uh, I think the technology of, um, you know, back, you know, way back, it first started as black and white, and they only had uh, two or three cameras. I think uh, the first Super Bowl, um, ABC, no, I think it was NBC and CBS, both televised the game. Um, um, and then after that, uh, they they started giving it away to one side or one a network or the other. But 
you know, they didn't have telestrators back then. They didn't have, um, <laughs> I mean, if, if you saw it, you, you may get a replay of, of a big play, and you may not. I mean, so, so, much, so much has happened with, through the networks and through uh, television, and so the, the, uh, uh, the improvement uh, in the trucks, the, con- the construction of the trucks that produce these things uh, uh, has really come a long way. And I'd say that's, that's probably... The, the color is much better. The uh, the, um, uh, the broadcasters are better, but but also the telestrators and uh, all the all the fancy buttons, the whistles and the buttons and all that other stuff that we push nowadays is much better than it was. Finally, Bob Greasy, the quintessential team player, always willing to share credit. How does it feel when you walk down the street and people remember and recognize your son? for both on-field and broadcasting more than you. What do you, what do you really think of that? Are you proud of it, or you just want to want to beat the heck oh, out of that? Of course. Yeah, no, of course <laughs> I'm proud of it. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of it when, when I'm not around him. When, when we're together, I'd say, well, uh, uh, first of all, he went to Michigan, and, uh, and in front of him I'll say, well, you couldn't get into Purdue, so you had to go to Michigan, you know. Good answer. Good answer. Well, obviously, the, the, the answer is that, uh, that uh, you have an incredible perspective, both on and off the field, and it's an honor and pleasure to know you and really appreciate your time. Bob Greasy, Rick Harrell, be on the scoreboard. See you in a couple minutes. Well, let's talk about the top tech moment in sports, our sports tech minute. E-NASCAR, center stage. The series averaged 1.1 million viewers on Fox, and according to SportsPro, Fox Sports has aired six virtual eNASCAR races via its FS1 linear channel, as well as digital platforms as part of the domestic broadcast deal. Without live sports, the virtual league has seen strong viewership, I'll say. Audience numbers remain consistently above 900,000 since its March 22 launch, and so far, Fox's largest audience during its e-racing broadcasts have come during the series' second installment on March 29. 1.3 million tuned in to watch professional drivers and gamers go head-to-head on the virtual Texas Speedway. That event broke the series' previous record for a televised e-sport event, which had been held by the virtual Homestead Miami Speedway, having drawn 910,000 viewers to FS1 a week earlier. NASCAR was one of the first rice holders in motorsports to introduce a new virtual series, with others having now done so. The stock car circuit showing that esports can reach an unpredicted success with mainstream media audiences, and that's your Sports Tech Minute. Welcome into the Esports Minute of Keeping Score with Rick Horo. I'm Mitch Reins from the Esports Network. Fans of fantasy sports have likely heard of Sleeper. Since launching in 2017, Sleeper has seen mass migration of fantasy leagues looking for increased customization and integrated messaging boards. Now the company is expanding to fantasy esports. On the heels of a $20 million funding round that featured investors like Kevin Durant, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Baron Davis, Sleeper announced a new League of Legends fantasy competition. DraftKings also expanded to League of Legends for daily fantasy last year, but season-long competitions haven't taken off. The main issue is a small player pool. The North American division of League features 10 teams with 5 players each. That's less total players than one NFL roster. That makes the start-sit and waiver-wire decisions that make up the bulk of week-to-week strategy in fantasy football obsolete in esports. Sleeper has brought that strategy into the new leagues by introducing champion bands to fantasy. 
Banning a playable character before a match is a big part of the strategy in professional League of Legends, as Sleeper hopes introducing it in fantasy will create the long-term success. That's it for this eSports Minute. Now back to Ricora. Finally, the power of Sports Minute, and it gets bigger every week, clearly. 14 pro sports leagues have united to honor the frontline heroes fighting COVID. The examples include tennis, golf, basketball, hockey, football, baseball, and others. And the social media challenge is not exclusive to just professional athletes. Sports World invites fans around the world to dedicate their personal jerseys and team apparel from a frontline to a frontline individual using the hashtag the real heroes. We certainly concur. And what about graduations, by the way? LeBron James using his many resources to recognize high school seniors across the country whose graduation ceremonies impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. He said, quote, this won't be a graduation experience they were supposed to get, but we hope we can still give them something special because they deserve it. And Kevin Hart, Stephen Curry, Serena Williams, celebrated the class of 2020 amid the coronavirus pandemic through virtual ceremonies, college, etc. The event sponsored by Chase Bank called Show Me Your Walk. And thanks to the NBA, tennis and movie stars, Chase YouTube and Twitter live streams of the event helped the many graduates of the class of 2020 connect digitally and celebrate their achievements even without a high school auditorium or a stadium stage to walk across. Good for them, and that's our Power of Sports Minute. And that's Keeping Score this week. We'd obviously like to thank Bob Greasy in the cherished memory of Don Shula. We'd like to thank you all for listening and watching. As we continue to keep score, stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, Reuters Digital. I'm Ricardo. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.